This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time now for Sensing Bros, a programme about whānau, wellbeing and personal growth. I'm sitting in the living room of our house and I've just finished eating dinner and Dad turned on the recorder and started asking me questions <laughs> and then asked me to ask him questions. So, yes, from our lounge to wherever you are, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome, welcome, welcome um, to our living room, to part four of uh, our conversation um, and really kind of hopefully rounding off a few of the ideas that have been um, stirring in us. And also introducing a whole lot of other ideas yeah, because since, the ideas never end. Yeah, it's particularly since the Black Lives Matter yeah. uh, protests began and And you're quite right. The ideas don't don't sort of just stop. They kind of evolve and turn into things um, that we hope you'll find interesting and useful. Yeah. So just thank you to our sponsor, Mapimaya, um, also, and um, I'll start it off with thank yous. So who would you like to thank? Um, uh, Thank you, Dad. I'd like to thank you. Could you be a bit more specific? (laughs) Thank you for inviting me onto your podcast and also for raising me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, both have been a pleasure. (laughs) So... If you're um, tuning in, we, we've got a little bit to cover. Mm. We will be revisiting evangelical um, issues yeah. as well. And um, also the things that actually give us hope mm. when, it, when so much looks like it's going under. Yeah. What do you think is the most damaging narrative around mental health and young people and how does the biomedical model fit into that? There you go. That's what you talk to me about a <laughs> lot. It is true. It is It is true. Um, The most damaging narrative is is the popularised myth of a chemical imbalance in the brain and uh, the medicalisation of, of um, mental anguish mm. and the, the idea and the myth that's, again, it's become popularise that somehow that's a cure Mm. Um, that the biomedical model is a cure you mean that um, that the medicalisation that falls out of a biomedical dominant narrative around what's causing mental anguish Mm. uh, has been so popularised that it's not critically evaluated what do you think of the mind-body a, connection yeah. and embodiment as helping people process their mental anguish? Well, I'm a big believer in talking therapies right. with, with the right heart so that a, a counsellor utilising, say, a number of different cognitive behavioural techniques and integrating theories... Um, 
with <coughs> with warmth and the ability to just sit back and not play or be expert but actually truly interested in a person's story mm -hmm. and how they make meaning and how they're making sense out of what's going on for them and um, and the capacity that they have to not be just at the mercy of um, emotions. Mm. Would you say then that talking therapies is, it's really about helping people to understand and craft their personal narrative? It is, and it's also, um, there's a reciprocity in, in the therapeutic process that mm -hmm. often doesn't get uh, talked about. So by reciprocity I mean that in people telling their narrative uh, and, and learning to reframe things, mm -hmm. so the internal voices and thoughts that go on can be critical, they can be nurturing, or they can be... Um, outlandishly grandiose mm. um, the conscious framing of a sense of purpose and meaning which helps regulate the emotions is fundamentally about having good connections and social relationships eh? Mm. So yeah, so it is. It's a good question. What um, <clears throat> what can you tell me about the avoidant attachment style and how it relates to people's personal narratives that they might craft internally and with influence from their their reciprocal social relationships? Well, that's a good question. Okay, so so we all have to deal with abandonment, rejection, fear and insecurity and emotions that, that rise up through that. And so attachment theories, or interpersonal attachment, as um, Dan Siegel would put it, um, suggests that if children don't get the kind of emotional messages that um, invoke in them or evoke in them a real sense of belonging and warmth and that they, they matter greatly mm. the message of significance and significance can be one of that's really quite alienating so the idea that um, if somebody, if a child is continually, say, ignored, what's what's the message that they might pick up? Well, that they have no significance. Yeah, and and attached to that might mean might be um, sort of scripts and ideas that there's no me to know. Mm. There's, I want to be known, so I need to, you know children do want to have attention and the right amount of attention mm. in the right way um, and so maybe there's no I'm not worthy of, of attention therefore I'm going to disconnect from that person and an adult behaviour that can come out in certain ways and really materialistic people might have that mm. um, because underneath what sits is a, is, a, is, a, is a too painful sense of emptiness and so they avoid deeper emotional mm. attachments so, so the avoidant attachment style is really um, I <clears throat> driven by the the deep fear that I am not worthy of being 
no, there's nothing. Yeah, there's nothing interesting about me or yeah. lovely about me or yeah. good or noble about me. Yeah. Because it, because I didn't receive those yeah. messages as a child. I I came across an interesting article on Sunday, and I don't want to mischaracterize the research because I only just skimmed over it. But it was about um, the effect of fiction and reading fictional narratives on people with avoidant attachment styles versus people that didn't have avoidant attachment styles that maybe had other kinds of attachment. And they found, interestingly, that the people with avoidant attachment styles had the strongest emotional responses to um, this the fictional narrative that they presented to them, which was a short story by some Russian author. Do you think that fiction and art um, are ways of people who maybe are avoidant connecting with that child and with their this the sort of malformed part of their personality that still that is still there? It's just buried really, really deep. Yes, would be my response to that yeah, very good question. There's a thing it's sometimes called inner parenting, mm. um, and and so the child part of the ego state that that hasn't resolved either the issues of abandonment or abuse um, or trauma or however that that if that has a if that hasn't been resolved, um, I think that the arts are a good way of kind of externalizing and allowing people to experience emotions in a safe way mm. because we all know it's a fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I often do a lot of work with, with people uh, around externalizing rather than. Um, you know, staring intently into their eyes and and trying to find the problem within. Mm. The mind-body connection it, for me is that the brain doesn't... Um, the brain has a function and a structure uh, and the mind is infused but, but is not um, just the materialistic functions of the brain so consciousness uh, works through the through the brain mm. which is fascinating that yes that is fascinating um, so consciousness works through the brain however would it exist without the brain <laughs> that's not no. where I was going but no, that is because, interesting yeah. but emotions um I guess consciousness make, can make us aware of our emotional state um, and helps us craft a narrative about our emotional state. But emotions actually reside in our body. <laughs> this is what I've been learning recently. And so with the externalizing of, I guess, internal traumas or struggles and also what okay so what <laughs> what I'm getting at is how does that help with people to regulate their emotions as they exist in their body not just as narratives in their mind well well you know the whole thing around somatic illness or, 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 or impact that, that um, there is research um, which talks about how the body does keep score yes yes yeah yeah of uh, um, of emotion eh? mm. and, and um, I have some theories around that I I think this the, we experience the I in relationship 
to an objective reality. So a supposedly objective reality. <laughs> a, a big pen psychic reality. Yeah. No. So, um, so, but we experience it subjectively. Mm-hmm. Everything that you and me experience is subjectively perceived. Yeah. So there's um, how we interpret the world around us and what's going on and how we select and filter affects our emotions, mm. our, our, our emotional mind, if you like. Would you say there's a feedback as well? Because <clears throat> yep, our, our internal emotional state, especially if we haven't yep. completed the cycle of a particular emotion and we've gotten stuck somewhere, that then... It, can uh, crack our lens and somehow make us see the world through that that um, incomplete emotional state. Yeah, would people rage, mm. or when they go from zero to the emotion of anger, you know, zero to a hundred, in in a millisecond. Mm. And then afterwards they say, how did that happen? That's generally, um, that kind of reaction and unpacking why people react like that is um, it's both evidence that the the emotions can hijack and um, the, the, the mind's mm. um, reasoning But also the mind can, it doesn't have to be enslaved to that, mm. it's not deterministic and part of the part of the unpacking of it is people becoming more reflective and mindful Yeah, and, and then getting underneath those layers yeah, mm. to understand what triggered that in the first place. Mm. So what's become something that runs faster in a person's mind um, it, and it's becoming a habitual response as an, as an emotion has to be unwound. Mm. Um, and it can be. It can be. Mm. People aren't, don't have to, I mean, um, people don't have to stay stuck in, 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 in a tendency to become violent. Mm. A, a lot of it, see, I don't. It's not a disease. It's socially learned yeah. behavior, and therefore it can be unlearned. Yeah. And and new habits of thought and behaviors mm. can can um, can work for people. Yeah. They're very insightful questions. I'm just, I'm just coming up with them on the fly. <laughs> I did not prepare for this. Um, I'm going to edit that out. <laughs> so, yep. Um, I guess I, I'm, I am really interested in this idea of externalizing. Um, and the arts, and also, yeah. I had an interesting conversation today, actually, with the UC chaplain. Yes. Tell me more. Um, (laughs) And we were talking about the transition out of an evangelical faith community. Mm. And we were talking about the need to uh, memorialize it through doing something quite physical and practical as opposed to only just thinking through all the reasons why you left and coming up with this internal narrative. And so he suggested to me um, quite literally, is to go down to a beach <laughs> or a forest and pick up a stone and have that stone, you know, represent something. So maybe um, a, a truth or 
a statement or a belief I held to be true while I was part of that community, but which didn't actually turn out to be true or good or, you know, beneficial for my well-being. Or it could be anything, or it could be a person, or it could be an event or something. And to hold that stone and to walk the length of a beach and, you know, just consider it and ponder it and let the thoughts come. And then by the time I get to the end of the beach, to to drop it or to throw it into the ocean. Or if I'm walking a track in a forest, to, you know, leave it in the bush. And um, that was just one example of how people externalise emotions or externalise uh, processing. And I think it's really helpful, especially because we have a, we, we have a world and an economy which is so based on our, our cognitive work. Yeah. And especially as labour becomes more and more uh, mechanised and the work you can do cognitively becomes more and more valuable because there are so many machines that can now do like hard labour. Um, I think it's important for us, not just academics like like me <laughs> or or you know a budding academic. I'm only halfway through my masters. Um, to to find ways to externalise uh, things that we would just try and process all internally uh, through narrative and through being articulate, because sometimes you can be really articulate and be able to you know say. This is my story. These are the my five points for why I made this decision. But there's a real act of embodiment um, and and doing, I guess, rituals and things that memorialize certain events. And I, I, I just I, I, when you're talking about how people externalize, Struggles, or you know, they take it outside of their body, and it makes it easier to cope with. Or mm. I think it's more than just a coping mechanism; it's actually like quite a powerful thing. And I think it's so, it's so human and normal. I mean, we always build we build altars to all sorts of things, and we have since the days of of wandering tribes. <laughs> Well, I th that's a really, um, that's a really good piece of advice mm -hmm. about, um, yeah, I, I think I might have to do that. Yeah, find a stone, go for a walk, it's, it's so normal. <laughs> and it's in, it's outside, it's in, a, in the context of something somewhere that's environmentally quite, there's something liberating about being in that space too. Yeah. But also, it's focused, mm. and then it's part of grief or separation, which all grief is about how we emotionally look at se being separated from something, mm. is the process of just letting it go. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I really like that idea. That's uh, because I've been wondering myself about that. Mm. Having having still a very um, strong, what I would say is a strong faith mm. just not <laughs> wanting to associate with a lot of uh, a lot of what it, it has become in the evangelical space yeah, yeah, yeah and I think that there is a grief in that separation that comes yeah. when you realize oh i'm not like these people <laughs> i don't belong here yeah, it, but it, i did mm. once um and i mean it applies to all sorts of people like i talked mm. to my friend who is um Hare krishna and she feels a, a similar kind of way about her, her, her transitioning and her her yeah. transitioning even though she's very she's still dedicated to the temple but i guess her realization of um of the fact that there are there are elements of it that she doesn't agree with, mm. um, and you have to separate yourself from that. And mm. it, so it's like, yeah, so many different contexts. But it's interesting. So shame 
as Brene Brown describes it, is the fear of disconnection. Mm. And you just described grief as separation or the response to separation. Mm. Um, mm. And I think it's interesting because one way that evangelical faith communities that's the term I'm using but it's sort of to describe a loose collection of churches that maybe aren't so healthy Mm. Um, that one way one powerful tool that they use is shame to keep people in the church and because they fear rightly so it's very human they fear that separation they fear that disconnection and then once you can get people across the threshold of fear so they, they're no longer operating out of shame. Then you have the grief to, to work through, which is that the separation that you feared, it did actually come and it didn't destroy you. <laughs> and now what, what are the next steps to, like you said, to letting go? And that can be in talking therapies if people need that. That can be just journaling, like doing talking therapy with themselves internally but also through taking real action like going for walks <laughs> or dancing <laughs> even or um, yeah doing some sort of ritual um, that helps them memorialize that part of their life and then let go so yeah and and letting go is the freedom to um, to no longer give too much time and energy to that can take us away from just focusing on um, the really enjoyable things in the in life now. Mm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and, and it's not that I think people people can be quite hard on themselves, especially we're talking about evangelical misogyny, which is this idea within a lot of churches that it, it's it's an expected behaviour of women, especially that they be calm and happy and pretty and kind of obliging all the time, and have to carry the lion's share. <laughs> when it comes to making sure everybody is pure and honourable. Um, and so sometimes women moving out of spaces like that, whether they be Christian or, or another faith, um, or even like mm. a professional space, mm. if it was quite male-dominated, mm. um, sometimes they want to move to being calm and happy mm. and pretty and obliging mm. and they think that their process f- out, um, of like their process in grief and their process their, their walk towards freedom um, looks like just a jump from oh, I'm in this space and I'm not happy to oh, I'm out of it and I'm now I'm happy and calm but it doesn't look like that There's you still have to um Maybe freedom looks for you, for those women I, and men, but I'm I'm a woman, <laughs> so I I know something about the experience of women. Um, looks like being able to enjoy life in the space that you're at now, but still occasionally, you know, reflecting on the past space that you're in, whether it was quite a misogynist evangelical church or some sort of other culture, and I guess allowing yourself to be frustrated at that. <laughs> and it's, a, it's an act of having self-compassion and not gaslighting yourself and saying, oh, well, I should just be over that by now. It's an act of saying, no, I mean, that was wrong. You know, I wasn't valued as I should be valued, and I know that now. And I'm, you know, you can still have those feelings of frustration. It doesn't mean that you are dominated by them or that you haven't processed your grief or that you're not processing it in a healthy way. So I think, yeah, 
like moving <clears throat> moving towards wholeness and moving towards freedom and processing a separation that comes mm. um, is all anger is a natural part of that process and you don't have to be cool and okay <laughs> and you know elegant all the time agreeable on that say yeah 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 and just because you you're not calm and happy and pretty and elegant <laughs> just because those aren't the feelings you feel doesn't mean that you aren't free that that's what i'm trying to say and I think that's right. There's a place for the discomfort of those emotions that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's not trying to avoid them or mm. um, ignore them. Like, it's just... It's just mm. Well, sorry. Like, like what I was talking about with the chaplain today was my frustration at my old faith community because it, they just seemed so completely ignorant on so many things um, in a way that is harmful to people and in a way that is harmful to their community and I said to him I said I'm frustrated and I don't like being frustrated because <laughs> nobody likes being frustrated it's a it's an annoying feeling of like I can see what you could do to be better but you're not going to do it and I know that I'm powerless in in your space to have any kind of voice um, but I, I also said even though I don't like being frustrated and I don't want my frustration to turn into like a lingering bitterness I also don't want to lose my frustration because it's, it matters to be frustrated at the things that you should be frustrated at the things that aren't right and that is a good it's a good lesson to learn um, and to carry into new spaces with you. Mm, I'm I'm very much not into people seeking bliss. Yeah. It, um, but the emotions that gather around thinking about things that aren't right and mm. around fear or things that are presented as good when you know that it could be so much better for people mm. Mm. those those things should really those those things matter yeah yeah although you know you watch some people I was watching this guy on um, and he comes from the reform tradition, so he's really he's pretty full on. Mm. But he's he's into calling out other evangelicals for their hypocrisy or their um, um, their apostasy or their mm. you know just just eat. and it's just annoying. <laughs> it's annoying because I'm thinking just get on with your own life, man. Yeah. I mean, you're, you 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 you're thinking that you've got to call these people out because um, they've just got another gospel mm. that you think's going to take people to eternal torment mm. you know um, and he's, he's getting to the point where he's naming people and then just you know say and he's even called some of them he says you're useless you know, he's mm. going into a psychology that I don't think he's aware mm. of his the sense of lack of grace mm. and uh, mercy, and it's not his job. Mm. But he's made it his job, his ministry, mm. to um, to do that. And to me, it's fear based. It, mm. he, he's he's set himself up and given him the biblical foundational rationale. Um, to take on that role mm. it's, it's kind of annoying well the reformed 
the reformed theology stuff will do that to a person. <laughs> so yeah, I know. You can't help but go down there, right? Yeah, I mean, and it, it's in contrast to people like Brad Jerzak or Brian Zand, yeah. who regularly do call out other Christian leaders or, I guess, Christian movements or ideas that are popular in Christianity um, as being harmful or not Christ-like or very, very far removed from the Christ of the Gospels. Um, But the difference is they're motivated primarily, it seems, by love and compassion and they have humility (laughs) and I think humility is really the key I I mean I was also talking to this uh, about this today with the chaplain because I um I I replied to something that um Brian Tamaki posted on Facebook today (laughs) this so he he so with the election we've just elected the gayest parliament in the world apparently we've surpassed the uk for that title and there's a stuff article about it is that right yeah so i think it's like 17 percent or something of labor mps identify as um, lgbtq and 40 percent of green mps which is four out of ten um because there's only ten uh and he obviously brian tamaki has, just has to say something about this. Oh, man. And he said that this was this was prophesied, or Jesus prophesied about, you know, spirits of delusion and impure spirits that would come into places of power and authority and yeah. seek to destroy New Zealand families. And the verse that he quoted from, the only biblical verse he quoted from to give him, like, some credence, is he mentioned Matthew twelve forty four which is mm. Jesus talking about when an impure spirit leaves a person mm. and it comes back and brings seven more with it. But that, what I what I pointed out to him in my comment um, <laughs> was that Jesus is in that verse, first of all, it's not a prophetic verse. He's very sp- explicit about the fact that he's talking to this current generation. Yeah, And he's talking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and his teaching is in response to them demanding Jesus show them a sign of his authority, show, him a mir- show them a miracle. Show so, us your power. So that is the context in which the, the yeah. verse that Brian Tamaki quoted from yeah. is, is Jesus, ironically, is, he's not talking to gay people. He's talking to people like Tamaki who were the religious leaders of their time with big followings and authority who were obsessed with signs. So mm. it's just, mm. it's frustrating. I can understand the frustration that, that Christians have um, around seeing the words of Jesus literally used in the complete opposite sense that they were intended. Mm. And that's hypocrisy. And... Mm. Um, the, the reformed guy that you're talking about, he I, I, I suspect, as a lot of reformed people are, they're not really that centred on Christ and his humanity and his gospel right. teachings. They're centred on a legal formula that they were defend yeah. their dying breath. Because so there's something in their personality traits mm. that seems to reinforce that. They're probably high um, in trait um, orderliness. No. I think I think definitely, definitely. Yeah. I can think of two straight away, and I'd go, yeah, yeah, yeah. So and, and likely low in openness to experience. Very, very low in openness to experience. Yeah. It'd be interesting. So, uh, it would, yeah. To do a study around the personality traits, and because there have been studies done around spiritual liberals versus religious conservatives. Yeah. And that is very trait dependent. Like you can pretty much just. Like I'm, I am I am ninety eight percent high in openness on when I did the big five personality yeah. model test yeah. that you can do online, um, which it, so it's no surprise to me that I'm like a spiritual liberal. <laughs> like, yeah, this is my lens. This is where I'm coming from. Well, I've just been um, downloading some research in that whole area. Yeah. Because I really want to look at it and go, okay, 
um, just in general, the research, you know, it's a handbook of religion and health. Um, just in general, it says it's good for health mm. reasons. Um, but there's also uh, there's also the abuse that happens with uh, within re- religious um, yeah. cultures. So you can go from a cult type authoritarian use of power, just yeah. using spirituality. But it doesn't have to be um, that can that can exist anywhere where you allow where you exalt another human being mm. as somehow closer to the divine yeah which that, Jesus warned against yeah, yeah. so many times there's a massive that, egotelling call no one father yeah. you know, call no one teacher you have one teacher you have one mediary between you and God yeah so yeah, um, yeah. so where was I going with that there was an important idea tucked away in there conservative religious conservatives research research spirituality religiosity mm-hmm. and and when it be- can become um what what I'm what's called spiritual traumatic abuse mm. yeah or or ARE's adverse religious experiences there's a, a yeah. institute for religious trauma that's yeah. been established, oh. which has done research around adverse religious experiences. And, and they borrowed that from adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. And they've defined it um, quite broadly, you know. Um, yeah, adverse childhood experiences, yeah. yeah. ACE. Or ARE now. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And there's an interesting Instagram account called Do Better Church, and which is connected to a, a website that has a map on it. And so people can basically anonymously submit or choose to not anonymously submit their experiences within churches. And the majority of people that submit are within evangelical Pentecostal Protestant churches. And um, the the Do Better Instagram account documents the stories that they are submitted and posts them and also this uses the stories to create a map, a global map of our spiritual trauma and abuse. So every time there's um, a, a submission of spiritual trauma or abuse, they pinpoint it on the map. And mm. it's mostly American. <laughs> mm. um, and this is on... On Instagram, Instagram. which I don't have. No, they also. This is. uh, They've got all sorts of different labels for it. So, so the the stories come with trigger warnings um, regarding it could be labour exploitation or misogyny, or um, sexual abuse, uh, or. I think I think that word exploitation is really apt. How how people get exploited? Um, well, some of the stories are just horrible. Religiously on this on this site, but it's really good that they're doing it because it, it gives people a sense that oh, they're not the only one who's yeah. had this kind of experience yeah. in church. Yeah, and especially wow. they they do focus um, on purity culture. Yeah, and how yeah, and its ties to misogyny as well. Yeah, and how it and, and shame and how it's really used. And there's a book, and I can't remember the name of the author, and I haven't read it yet, but it's on my list, called Pure, How Evangelical Christianity kind of abused and shamed a generation of young women. Wow. And it just documents stories of purity culture and women who have left evangelical Christianity. Um, But like I say, like I have these kind of conversations about purity culture with women who were never involved in the, in a church, who grew up, you know, quite relatively secular with liberal parents, but just influenced by society and its messaging towards women in the media and stuff. And I also have this conversation with people of different faiths, people, um, you know, that come from Eastern traditions. And it's actually, it, it's, it's across the board, <laughs> what, like... Yeah, it's um, it's you would could almost say this is a universal experience. Yeah, 
I mean, it's universal, but it's also culturally specific. Like, I don't want to, I would like whitewash it. I mean, there are there's like intersectional issues. Yeah. You know, people experience things differently if they're a woman and if they're a woman of color and if yeah. they're a, a yeah. queer woman of color and etc. Yeah. But like, um, yeah, no, there is just this commonality of experience around purity and shame and yeah. guilt. Uh, these are these are fundamental human emotions, mm. and I think, yeah. They, they and talk. so, oh, sorry. There's this idea of cultural binaries, and that in the West we have guilt and innocence mm. is our sort of cultural binary, and mm. Um, mm. I think in the more Eastern traditions, there's shame and honour. Mm. Is there sort of a cultural binary and things like that? Yeah, I haven't explored the idea, fully, def- but it's interesting. Oh, I was just writing it. Well, I haven't. I was writing it as a line for the thesis, you know, mm-hmm. that I'm going to look at at at, um, at that, mm. unpack it a bit for the Pacifica religious narrative context. Mm-hmm. That'd um, be interesting. Particularly because I've called it this um, uh, the coll- the collectivist authoritarianism mm. versus rugged individualism yeah and some those and and then looked at it going well what's the risk factors and what what are the protective factors mm. to developing a secure identity yeah because collectivism it's interesting because because collectivism can become authoritarian yeah, theory I, exactly yeah. and and this is what happens in churches. But the the irony, and mm. Dr. Jordan Peterson has pointed this out in his biblical lecture series, is that the the paramount hero of Western culture, who is Jesus, you know, um, yeah. say what you want about like yeah, the yeah. connection between Christianity and colonialism, and that all needs to be unpacked. But Jesus yep. is the hero of the West. Yeah. And he... And, and tied up in that is this idea of a persecuted individual. You know, someone who stood completely apart from belonging to the the social groups of his time. <laughs> and so then this, this religion that get... really glorifies the individual um, yeah. also is, is becomes such a powerful force in collectivist. Yeah. Cultures. Yeah. So I find that really interesting, and and like it's a Christian problem, it's a social cultural problem. Mm. You know, it's a personal problem that balance between being a rugged individual, you know, wanting not to be completely subsumed by your culture, and and be I guess liable to becoming part of a cult <laughs> or just a loyal soldier that follows orders mm. um, because that's not the path to virtue <laughs> really I mean because what if the person or the authority you're following is evil um, mm. but at the same mm. time you can't fully um, you can't do it alone. We're <laughs> mm. social creatures and we need community. And that balance between the need to belong and the need to also maintain a sense of um, individualism in following after Christ. Mm. That's something I struggle with. I'm like, I don't know. Am I being too individual here, God? <laughs> Or am I am I not being community oriented enough? Or am I being am I being too um, too collectivist and just going with what I think the culture expects of me? Or, or yeah, I don't know. Well, I think it's important to ask, like every day, mm. whenever I'm going to counsel somebody or run a group or do anything like that. There's uh, I'll walk down that drive or I'll wherever I'm going and I don't just and I'll always ask ask 
for help mm. internally mm. because I'm not I'm going in not with this sort of kind of um, I don't know I'm going in with a sense of not knowing yeah what's to be listened and addressed to here even if I know the person well and I've been maybe working with them a while there's still the, the I don't become too familiar with what I think I know. Yeah, yeah. And, that's, and well, that's humility. I, I suppose it is. <laughs> You're so humble. I'm so humilitated. <laughs> I can't make up a word. Humilitated. What we need in the mental health profession is humilitated people. <laughs> Not humiliated people. No, humilitated people. people. <laughs> yeah. Mm. But that's that's. I think that's so important to to know. Um, yeah, and I guess humility in that question that I was asking about the balance between collectivism and individualism, individualism. is humility. Humility helps you navigate that. It does. Um, it because does. If humility could be described as the skill of knowing when to be an individual and depart from the norm, and when to subject yourself. To the norm, into the culture, into the the arms of your community, you know. I think that, like, uh, that's that's the um, that's the art of understanding what's yours to carry and what isn't. Yeah. And yeah. And that's about understanding what you expect from yourself and knowing why. Yeah. And. And when expectations are crossing your own, that's not okay. Mm. Expectation from somebody else for me. Yeah. 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 And then knowing that I can I can look in the mirror and go, well, there's no one left to blame if I just roll along with <laughs> somebody else's. Um, I'm not I'm not their puppet. Mm. I, I have a responsibility to stand up and, and ask, is this expectation of me um, important enough for me to, to give it due attention and then to decide, is it something that I believe in? Mm. Is it aligned to what I think is good? Mm. So it's a moral and, unpacking. And that, that's an important skill and process to go through I think that there are a lot of people that get indoctrinated that lose ah. their ability to do that and the the another irony how do you indoctrinate someone eh? yeah well how another, another irony is that yep. well you play on their basic fears around yep. belonging and shame yep and um a funny a funny thing I, I think about is while they're told that by being obedient that is humility it's actually the opposite of humility because if we're talking about humility as a skill as a set of questions you ask yourself they're not engaging in that at all they've lost their ability not perhaps not forever people can be brought out of cults you know um but they've lost their skill to to ask themselves the questions they need to ask to stay to stay humble <laughs> and they've done it's, it in the name of what they think is humility it's like oh, it, I know, it's, I know. It's like all, there's so, so much Orwellian double speak that goes on. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what's considered respectful? Yeah. Is 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 not um, seeing somebody free. Mm. It's just seeing somebody comply. Which is the soldier mentality. That's and, a slave. And, that, and the religious yeah. conservative types are so much more apt to, to that, become hey. that. Yeah. And I think to apt to become what. Hannah Arendt would call the banality of evil, you know, that they, in following orders and rules and procedures and, and the expected done thing, uncritically, they can participate in monstrous things. Um, mm, or, or play a part that they have no idea Mm. What part in that chain they're actually playing? Yeah, or, or, because yeah. they're not looking at at the stream they're of thought that they're a part of. Willfully ignorant about it. 
Yeah. So we say something positive um, about. Um, well, people don't have to be willfully ignorant. <laughs> That's positive. You can rise above it. <laughs> mm, I, no, because I'm just. I think everything that you've mentioned is 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 really important. Mm. Um, I I want to see people becoming more reflective and aware in psychological terms about what their faith is about. Mm. Because what disturbs me is um, is that at one level you get really nice kind of like values and um, you know there's there's stuff that's that's quite useful, mm. and then there's stuff that's really just othering. Yeah, it's just sort of. Um, and you're right, a lot of it won't go addressed because well, people have already brought into this, they've already found a place where they feel yeah. they don't need to. to um, be as open as they ought as anyway well what's your okay okay my hopeful message is that what you're getting at yeah my, my hopeful okay well i guess i would say the thing that buffers me against complete and utter cynicism <laughs> is knowing is looking at the person of jesus and that he saw no stranger and that actually there's a lot of people in the world of all different um, colours and stripes and faith traditions that follow in that Christ-like spirit of seeing no stranger. Yeah, um, that, that's encouraging. I see. Yeah. yeah, so it's encouraging for me at a personal level because it gives me the hope that if I carry my cross after Jesus, I will become like Jesus. And that means not being a slave to um, cynicism or hatred or incompetent human authority. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. The illegitimate use of authority. The yeah, because I will be um, not a rugged individual, but a compassionate individual. Mm. So, so that's the hope I have for myself, is that I, I don't think, I don't, I know I'm, I wouldn't hold myself out to be any, like, like Christ, but I think I'm on the trajectory towards that, and that's where my hope comes from. Um, but also, my hope, not just for myself, but for the world, is that I think that Jesus also talked about the kingdom of God being among us, and being already there, already um, sown like yeast throughout bread or yeah yeah you know and already sort of starting to rise and so yeah. i have this hope that the world generally many people in the world are on a trajectory towards christ likeness as well and it's not and it comes in surprising shapes and forms jesus doesn't work with the people that that the religious conservatives think he works through all the time you know Christ-likeness. If you look for it, you see it in people. Um, and it's beautiful. And I think, yeah, I think we're all becoming more like Jesus and seeing no stranger. And I see these little episodes, <laughs> like these right-wing conspiratorial parties that pop up and start spouting lies during elections or you know the old self-proclaimed apostle who hates gay people and openly preaches against them i see them as symptoms of something that is dying <laughs> like i don't see them as where the trajectory of where the world is headed they're part of the old way that is being cast off they're part of the old man that is dying and the new spirit that is coming alive is is connecting us back to one another and restoring us back to one another. 
That's my hopeful message for the evening. That's very hopeful. That's very, very good. Mm.